Welcome to the One Solution Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to explore if there really is one solution to all the world's problems. And that perhaps that solution lies in the mind. The mind is both the source of those problems, but also the solution to those problems. Welcome, everyone. It's good to have you back for the people who are back. And hello to everyone who is new. We are uh, really excited actually doing this series. We're having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. For the last one, we got a lot of questions that- Really good questions. We are probably going to tackle some of them today, but the third one is going to be heavily uh, questions and answers. So even if you have questions on this one, just write them down and we'll get back to them either in this one or in the next one. And, oh, people are saying hello already. Hey, Lick Phoenix, how you doing? Um, And this particular webinar uh, is all about how we're going to be looking at how change happens from the micro to the macro. So if you look at personal change, how that occurs by looking at the mind, how uh, a community could change by looking at the mind, how an organization, all kinds of ways that people organize, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, any, anything you can imagine that where humans organize uh, together, um, how systems that we live, live in, the systems that humans have created, how that is changed from the same perspective, uh, how uh, the evolution of technology and art is uh, an evolution that also is affected by the mind, and all the way to global, so the holistic picture of everything together. So in the last webinar, we talked about how really if you look at the source of something, then you really are able to truly understand it. And when you truly understand it, you're able to create change in an easier and more sustainable way. Versus if you don't understand uh, a problem, it's uh, really hard to make change, or at best, it's it's not really sustainable. And our whole premise and our whole hypothesis is that everything stems and comes from the mind, the potential of the mind, and how it relates to human beings, and what happens when we understand or don't understand that. So that was the last webinar, and now we're going to kind of go into the little pieces of it and look uh, at different uh, scales of how that occurs, what are their implications, how, how it really happens, and how you can almost like not leverage, but like understand that uh, phenomenon. So hopefully after this webinar, you'll be able to look into your life and s- figure out what scale are you interested in and how does what we're talking about relate to your world. So. Yeah, and I would say the goal is is how it relates to your world and and so much so that it becomes clear that it's not um, out of reach or nothing to do with you or right. too big or too complex. Like all of these these webinars and the, and the overall the online course that we're creating was specifically designed to help put people back in the driver's seat of feeling like a participant in change, as we keep saying, on any scale. So... Um, yeah, that'll be kind of the the hope the hopeful goal for this webinar is to help you see that it is not distant from you, it's not separate from you, it's not too complicated for you. You're as much a part of change on any scale as anyone else. 
Cool. We got people saying, hey, already we got Mary, James, Peter, Chris, Lick. Really nice to see everyone. So I just want to start by saying, and and we'll we learned our lesson last time. We'll look to get questions a little bit earlier Earlier, because we ended up running over last time. So we'll say a little bit just to give the context of this conversation. And then please do type in your questions as they come up because we will refer to the little chat box over here periodically. Um But just to start off, I think um, one of the things we touched upon in the last webinar, but it's really important to sort of start with for this one, is um, if you look at everything in the world, it really is just what people have thought so far. And that just broadens out as we get more people together. So if you look at an individual and then when they get married, let's say a couple then creates a family. And so then there's a family culture. So it's two humans that have got together and they have their way of seeing the world and their way of thinking about the world and then therefore how they raise their kids. And we all know that often a married couple even struggles with Different the differences, the yes. different realities, the different yes. way they see things. So one thinks you should raise the kid um, to be, we have a joke. And this is, I know my parents aren't on this webinar, so I can go ahead and share you know? this How one. Do you know? Don't yeah. tell them. But we have this joke that uh, if we had been raised by only my mom, we would be very, very loving wimps. <laughs> And if we had been raised only by my dad, we would be very, very driven, successful psychopaths. <laughs> my dad was very, you know, achievement oriented and very driven and always pushing us to, you know, be better than we were and see the next, you know, possibility and never get kind of comfortable with where you were at. Whereas my mom just really wanted to shower us with this feeling of love and compassion and you're perfect the way you are. And um, and they had their issues, of course, parenting from those two very different perspectives as we were growing up. And, you know, they worked it out. Unfortunately, I'm probably biased, but I'd say me and my siblings are relatively well-balanced human beings. But <laughs> I did see that it was very hard for them as two humans coming together to create a family culture that they had very different realities and they had very different perspectives on that. But At the end of the day, it was really one thought system versus another thought system, and they had to work it out. Uh, They had to find a way to listen enough to each other and to get comfortable with uh, creating something that worked for the family. And then if you look, you know, bigger to organizations, like I spent the last 12 years working primarily in organizations with companies that were oftentimes frustrated with people's sort of lack of accountability or lack of participation in the culture of the organization. So there's, you can see a lot of times when you go into a company that there's a, there can be a tendency to blame things outside of themselves. There's a way in which people talk about the powers that be or the higher ups or the company culture, Mm -hmm. as if these are all things that they have no part in, no Um, say and no influence over. And one of the big things that we would work with when we would go into a company is just pointing people to their own mind and the realization of if you want anything in this company to get better, you have to be a participant in that. You have to see the role of your mind to 
kind of break out of the way you've thought about things or the way you've thought about your role and become an active member in creating this culture. Because what is an organizational culture? It's a group of people. Humans, like, yeah. It's a family gone bigger with a different focus, you know? So well, a family focus might be one thing and a business focus might be, it's still just a collection of humans. And then if you go larger from there, and this is the thing is as it gets bigger, it can be tempting for people to lose sight of themselves, to lose sight of the individual, to feel disempowered because somehow when you get to more and more numbers, it looks like I'm less of a participant or I have less influence. And so when you look at systems like political systems or criminal justice system or education system, um, our legal system, our environmental system, it's so easy to go, well, that's too big. That's a different thing. But is it a different thing? It's still just humans who've had ideas that have taken those ideas out of their heads and put them into the world. And so if you want to make any kind of change to a system, We have to be able to go back to the source of it at that simplest level and see, okay, what is the thinking to date that has created this system? And how can we sit down with human beings, with individuals, granted a collection of them, but with individuals, and look to listen and to understand how that system was created and to get reflective beyond the thinking we've had so far to see if we can't have some new ideas about how to change that system. And the only way I've ever seen to do that is to sit with people, to listen, and to point them to the potential of their mind to go back to the drawing board and have a new thought. Um, And we can give some examples in a moment of um, places where we've actually seen and done that. And then just to go to the global, again, the bigger it gets, the more kind of we lose sight of ourselves or the more distant it seems to become. But again, the world is a collection of people, albeit with very different thought systems, with very different versions of reality. But yet what I find fascinating is any of you who have traveled the world uh, for leisure or for work, you know that if you enter a culture curious about people, and again, this only happens on a one-to-one or group of people basis. It's not, you can't understand a culture by reading a book about it. You can't understand a culture by observing it from afar. You can try, but it stays very theoretical. Whereas if you go to a country, if you go to a different culture and you get curious, you will see, oh, this is also just a collection of thoughts. This group of people thinks this way, or actually within a culture, there's a lot of different ways of thinking. So it's not helpful to just put blanket statements on groups of people. But again, we're, we're always dealing with the same thing. We're dealing with the minds of people, the thoughts that look real, and what they've put into place in the world. That's creating organizations, that's creating systems, that's creating the world at large. So for me, it's very exciting because you can see how you can connect with any level. You can connect with any layer of that because it's the same mechanism on a different scale going on anywhere you go it was it was funny because when you said that we are systems uh that we create i thought about you know i'm 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 from norway so we relate to like the vikings and uh there's this like um romantic story about i don't know why vikings became 
or brutal. I, yeah, I no, think Vikings is like no, no, but it is like perceived as people like, <laughs> oh, that's cool. Almost like the brutalness is like has a coolness to it, a heroic, yeah. right? Versus uh, other places like, oh no, those horrible people. For some reason, Vikings are like their main movies, and you get to relate to them. Uh, so it's a little bit weird like that, but. One thing I remember that we have, like, that was a rule that uh, was the idea of um, blood vengeance, meaning if some someone did something, something happened, and you can see how this, this idea came about, is that if something happens to you or someone in a family or uh, they, they mess with your honor in a way, mm-hmm. and, and honor is also something you can see historically changes what is honorable or not. Or when you've crossed the line of doing something that you shouldn't have. Right. Totally different everywhere else uh, in the world and historically. But if someone did that, they crossed that line, then you would need to do what's called a blood vengeance, which is what you would need to go back and then bring hurt upon people, uh, the family of the people who dishonored you. Right. Destroy their honor. Yeah, and that that didn't even need to be the person. It could be anyone. It could be uh, their son. It doesn't really matter. But you can see that even the rules of them was just so made up in a way, this idea of blood vengeance. But then you can see like, wow, that's an idea that for some reason have popped up other places in the world now and are to the degree an idea that is still mm-hmm. uh, with different it looks different, but it's still going on in different formats. So when we work uh, here in the South Side of Chicago, they don't call it blood vengeance. It's not a, an, an, you know, necessarily the same thing, but it is about a person feeling something and then trying to create some idea of how to get rid of that feeling or how to recoup your honor because you feel like something has happened to you. And then you got to go back and do uh, like the way the kids say, put hurt upon them so you will get rid of your own hurt. And you can see that that idea becomes almost like its own system. It seems like it lives its own life. And it, it and after it's been created, it's it's a, it's a system that uh, lives its own life and it kind of uh, happens on its own and people don't question it because it's kind of, it's ingrained in what you would call culture or what you would call society or uh, your neighborhood or wherever it is. And every time we do that, every time we put it, as something that is outside of human thinking or human imagination, we're kind of owned by it. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's just something that's out there, mm-hmm. you know? Or the way the people, the way things are the way it are is because of the system. And then we would just we don't even know what we mean when we say the system. We're like, oh, just the system does it, or the man, or the government. Right. The kids here often refer to the man. I love it. Or the government. And it's like if when I find myself blaming the government, I just like, I realize I don't even know what I'm saying. Like who in the government, like I can I go into the government and who will I be talking to and who are sitting in a conference room? And I could be create, the government if I wanted to get right, involved in that system. Right. And who's sitting in this government room making these de- decisions. And like, you can see that 
it's just a simple idea that there is something out there mm-hmm. that the bad news is if you put it in the word like a government, something that is a collection of humans, then you can't do anything about it because it's just like it's too complex. There's too many balls uh, all over the place. There's just impossible to do something with that or a system. Like, can you feel the weight of that? Like, change the system. It's like, I know, even that word it. I think of as like, like heavy. That's rough. Like, how do you change the system or the government or like... I think you talk slower. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just... Eh. But it is. if you. But if you take it back to like the humanist, like Mara would say, you would see that those systems are really a reflection and a creation mm-hmm. of humans. And if they were created, if these things were created and became solid as a system, it can be recreated. We can figure out new things. It's not, it doesn't stop. It didn't stop in 2019. I'm like, oh, this potential for creating system just stopped now. Uh, we can't figure out something new. It's, it's always recreating itself. And, and you can look through history that it that it always has done that. So that's like the amazingness of it. It's like a system is just a group of people. It's just a collection of minds that we have put a word on. And as soon as we put that word on it, mm-hmm. it became heavy, mm-hmm. intangible, complex, something that's out of a control and it's not related to me. And that thing should change before I can do anything. And it creates this separation. The system is separate from me. The world out there is separate from me. Other people are separate from me. The government is separate from me. And then with that separation, you feel like it's big. It's over there. I can't do anything with it. And it's nothing to do with me. And what we're saying, it's it's the opposite. It's part of you. You are the same as that thing. You, We are all part of creating it. And it actually, at the source of it, is simple. It's human. It's it's uh, it's a one thought thin. It it can be molded. It can be remolded and, and reimagined. So, if you see that, you will see that you can go into anywhere, any person, any situation, any system, any organization, and see that at the source of it is this potential for recreation. It's potential for reimagining it, and this potential to put it down to the basic human, the fundamentals, that where it all came from level. Because if you get stuck in the numbers, in the thing, in the system, in the organizations, becomes a prison. Becomes a prison and becomes something you can't do anything about, and it's nothing to do with you. So that is, to me, is what empowers anyone to make change: is is seeing those things for themselves. Yeah, it's funny. I can think of a couple of examples uh, just very recently of this that demonstrate this and one is we were just looking at the um the there's just a short video intro to a documentary about a guy named daryl davis who um is a black gentleman who decided to befriend members of the kkk and he says his sole motivation was trying to understand how can you hate me if you don't even know me and so he just went into the the kkk with the sole agenda of getting to know them, having a relationship with them, not to change them. That's what's right. so interesting is he didn't go into, this wasn't some crusade to um, convert people from the, of the KKK to thinking differently. His sole agenda was just 
get to know me. I want to get, so how do you get to know someone? Well, you get interested in them. He couldn't show up and just say, I think you should know me. He went into it thinking, all right, how can I get to know these people? And what's so fascinating, he's given a TED Talk. There's a documentary about him. I highly recommend looking him up, but it's it's funny. He looks like he's having fun, just like you would look like you were having fun if you were going out on a date trying to get to know someone or going out with a group of friends trying to get to know them more. Like you see him sitting on the front porch of a grand wizard of the KKK dressed in his ridiculous, excuse me, but ridiculous, you know, hood and and the whole outfit. And they're shooting the shit and chuckling together. Right. And there's the one scene where the guy looks and he's like, no, this is the KKK guy saying this is who I got. Now, here's someone I can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> such right. a, it's such a brilliant example of, as opposed to that guy saying, well, you, you know, change. racism is systemic and or or that organization is evil or like he's not blaming the organization. He's not blaming the system. He's not, not blaming, blaming race. He's just saying, well, I want to get to know them and I hope they get to know me. And the last I read about him, you know, he's because of his involvement in getting to know these people, over 200 people have left the KKK. And, you know, uh, that's certainly not an end to racism, but it's a damn good start. And it took, I don't even want to say the courage, but almost the simplicity of someone looking at it and going, well, I don't really see how I could change this other than going and getting to know them. And I think that's a brilliant example of what we're talking about. And that that happens on such a simple but overlooked level is it happens right here between him sitting down with those people, getting interested in them, wanting to connect with them. And you see all that. You should check it out. But you see all these pictures of him taking pictures in front of Confederate <laughs> flags. And he has his own. He's been actually, he's, got a, he's got a membership card. So there's this one group of the clan that has embraced him so, so wholeheartedly as a member. He's got this picture of him with his proud little card there. And um, I think it's just absolutely brilliant example of what we're talking about. And then the other one that I think about that's very recent, as I saw in the news yesterday, that um, that 16-year-old Swedish girl, Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, is that her name? Thunberg, yeah. Greta, Greta Thunberg. You, you wouldn't say that in Scandinavia, but you can say it like that. How would you say it? Greta Thunberg. That, yeah. So her... <laughs> She was just um, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize at 16 years old. And for those of you who haven't happened to stumble across her in the news yet, she, well, this is all within the last year. This has not been a long time thing. This has all been very recent and it's happened very quickly. But she decided to start boycotting school on Fridays to go protest in front of the Swedish government to say that... Um, politicians are not taking aggressive enough steps to try to deal with climate change and that as a 16-year-old who's too young to vote, she felt that it was unfair that the people who were going to be most affected by climate change were out of the political discourse, were out of the political influential sphere. And so she wanted to take a stand and say, you know, as as a youth, as someone who, you know, has to see my future ahead of me, I want to be a part of making sure that this change happens faster. So she started boycotting every Friday, skipping school. And that has snowballed into an entire movement. And just this past Friday, 
there was a global march of youth from all over the world. Cities all over the world had marches where kids skipped school and protested about the inaction around climate change. She's spoken at Davos. She's spoken at the UN. She's been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And this is one 16-year-old girl who had the thought, what we're doing now isn't good enough. I want to be a part of making a change. And I guarantee you the first time that she skipped school to go sit on the steps of whatever the Swedish, I don't know if she's in front of the parliament or whatever it is there. <laughs> but I, I I, don't know. I haven't seen an interview with her, but I have a feeling she wasn't like, well, I'm going to change the movement, world right, right now. It was more just she saw that there was something in place that she saw could be better, and she wanted to be a participant in making that change. And I, I love the ordinariness of her. If you've ever seen any of the um, speeches she's given, she's she's unbelievably um, kid-like but profound all at the same time. She's fearless in what she says and the kind of bluntness and the honesty in which she calls politicians on their lack of activity. And um, I, I, I end up in tears every time I watch her because <laughs> she's just so inspiring to me. Um, yeah, and if, if you look at those two examples, they have very different expressions and very different ways of going about it but they have deep understanding and ability to to listen in a way, to understand what's going on. And if you look at both of them, they're challenging. This, you know, we call it challenging the status quo. But what is the status quo? The status quo is the you know the the, the world, the the ideas we have, the way of thinking, the way of just thinking, normal right now. It's challenging the normalized thinking that we have. That is the status quo. It's not it's not a thing. It's it's a mm -hmm. it's a it's a collection of thoughts that we believe to be true. That they are in their own way either directly say like, hey, the this thinking is going to destroy the earth, or the other guy's like, hey, let me understand your thinking. What makes you uh, think that you're different than me. Mm -hmm. So two different ways, but still the same process of looking at what it, in the mind needs to what change. in the mind needs to change. And if you look at any change, that's how it happens. The ideas create the system and you cannot create the system without the idea following it because mm -hmm. a new system will just pop up. You can you can you can take away the thing, you can take away the 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 systems or change it, but if the minds of the people don't, don't follow it, it will show up in the same way, mm -hmm. which is why uh, you have a lot of hidden hidden races that suddenly pop up again when it's okay <laughs> to, to talk about it. And when it's not okay, they hide because it they don't want to share. So that, that, that points to the fact that change didn't really happen. People didn't have a change of heart or a change of mind of how they looked at that thing, but the system was changed. So if you change the system and change the mind, then you got kind of both both worlds going on. Should we see if there's any questions? Yeah, I was thinking this would be a good time to pause and look at what some of the questions and comments are. Oh, God, there's so many. Oh, Cynthia, Shannon, British Columbia. What a wonderful crowd. Oh, South of France. Uh, Norwich. Hey, Mark. 
Oh, hi, Amy. Amy's on. Amy. Okay, are there any questions or are they just comments so far? Because people uh, can see the comments. Let's see. This would be a good time for me to say Amy, so shout out me, if you have a question. One of the most exciting things happening in this time of the U.S. is the number of people becoming creatively engaged in citizenship and considered running for office, too. Yes. yes. I totally agree. I think that that has been, and again, it's, I love that you brought it up because I think sometimes it's hard for people to see when we're in the thick of it. But I think if you zoom out, you'll look and see that more than ever, people have become civically engaged right. and politically engaged to a degree that just we were a little bit snoozy about. I think people were sort of complacent or figured that the system was running, you know, fine enough. Of course, people had their issues with it, the things that they liked and didn't like. But I think... um I know for me, and and I don't want to get into a political debate. Well, it's not. <laughs> because it's not about what, what my opinion is in terms of Republican, Democrat in this country anyway. Those are kind of, unfortunately, the two options we seem to have. But um, Or any in any country, any political kind of party that you might side with. I've never actually really liked a party. I've always just gone with the person and, and do I think the person has vision and integrity. But for me, when when Donald Trump won, I was definitely sad. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. I was sad for about 24 hours. And then I remember waking up the next day. And it was funny because at that time, we were planning the One Solution Conference in Oslo, I think. Is that right? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. All I know is we had a conversation with a project in Africa, and there was something about talking to these people in Africa that made me kind of snap out of my own pity party about who <laughs> had just been elected. And it kind of zoomed me out in a good way. And after having this really productive and inspiring conversation with this team in Africa, I remember getting off the call and because, and this is what's so fascinating is because I'd forgotten how unhappy I was about it. And I had connected to some other people in some other part of the world in a, in a positive way, my mind lifted, my spirits lifted. And so I got some of that freedom of mind back that we talked about in the last webinar. And because I could see more clearly, I started having productive ideas about the current administration and I thought, well, you know what? This will be really interesting. It'll be fascinating to see what people do because I think a lot of people, when they don't get the result they want, can go one of two directions. They can either, which I was for 24 hours, be sad and pissed and pouty, or they can say, okay, well, how could I participate to help things? And that was exactly what happened to me is when I got over my upset and I got into a different state of mind, I started to think productively, well, how can I get more engaged? And it was the first time that I really had to take a look and see, you know what? I haven't been that engaged. I've been engaged a little bit, but mostly as, you know, I would say a, a just barely participant in the political system, I voted for president. That was about it. You know, I didn't do much else. And so I started researching ways I could get involved on a local level. And I can definitely echo what Amy said. I think you've seen a huge spike in that. And that's been a really good thing. And now, you know, if you look at just our last election, the number of women and minorities and different religions that have been elected to political office is like never before. So now can I pull, pull in a different direction? Sure. Well, because I, I, I agree that 
that is those are amazing things. I think where it, it gets tricky for us humans is that we don't none of us really see the world uh objective. We don't see a political situation objectively. We don't see uh what needs to happen. We are we're all in our little echo chamber. We're all like kind of like making stuff up about things. And when when I see those things happening, I also see a lot of uh reactions. I see a lot of a lot of us feeling emotional, feeling like, and then with that thing comes a certain blurriness, comes a certain um mm-hmm bias and a certain uh, almost like an what we're, we're, we're trying not to do like i can feel myself in the fight for trying to connect i disconnect with people meaning like i start saying that the people who uh who are creating like an us versus them dynamic is wrong and they shouldn't do that and, and what have i done us versus i'm, them? I'm yeah. creating us versus them i like i put those people who who try to separate people as a separate thing and I don't try to understand them. I don't try to listen. I see that you're exactly see the same. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm doing exactly the same as they are doing. And I see that every time it happens, there's a burst, but we always unite towards some kind of like fictional enemy, whether it be Republicans or the people who have a certain type of belief. We we get fooled by the same thing we're trying to fight, you know? So we're trying to connect and we get upset. Why aren't we just connecting? Why aren't we all just getting together? But then we create this enemy who are the people who don't want to connect and then we fight against them. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, I think it's amazing. We're joining and we're doing that. But if I take it back to that guy, that that guy who went to the KKK and you have to think about that in, in uh, systems and in scales too, that if you truly want to connect us, like a black person, the person from the KKK can do. And if you do want to do that on a systemic level, it doesn't happen by fighting it. It happens by understanding it, almost by by befriending it, by listening, by going beyond your own thinking about it, by being engaged, but being extremely open and being like going beyond your own thinking about it. And that's to me is what opens doors and what lets different parties and different uh, kind of groups of people who are so-called against each other to really open up. So that's kind of like the the opposite direction is that that feeling you have when an election happened is a very personal feeling. And that personal feeling can um, lead you towards uniting or it can also just create another enemy. And then we're doing this the same thing we're trying to, to avoid. So I see that phenomenon on a husband and wife level, but I do see it happening in a big scale. And you have this amazing energy of you want to change, but then you also have, you know, uh, here in Chicago, you have all these uh, people on the streets, angry, protesting. And when we all do that and we start to protest each other, nobody's really listening. We're just kind of talking over each other the same way I could protest against my wife. She, I would say, oh, this is wrong. And, oh, you shouldn't do this. And she would say, oh, well, you're not doing this. So why aren't you doing that? Mm-hmm. And we're doing that just on the streets with thousands of people, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there is something to it. There is something about challenging it. But there's also something about if we really want to meet those people, then we got to listen. And we got to kind of go to the same table mm-hmm. 
and break bread in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. It's funny. It reminds me, too, as an example of within an organization. My dad talked about this in the last chapter of my book. I had my dad write the final chapter. Um And he talks about how when he learned about his mind and the role of thought in creating every last iota of people's perception of reality, it really helped him to redefine how he thought about sales, which I know seems like a total tangent, but it's not. That's why I bring it up is because it's the same thing on a different scale applied to a different topic. But what he realized is that He's in a he's a CEO of a sales company. They sell uh, outdoor media, so things like they call it out of home media, so uh, um, billboards and things like that. And that typically salespeople in a media sales company will go sit with a client and try to convince them that their form of media is worth their um, spending dollars, their advertising dollars, and they try to essentially convince that sales is a very um, sort of convincing process or manipulating process or winning over process. Right. And the way he describes it um, in that chapter of the book, and then we did an interview with him recently here for the audio version of the book, and I love the way he talks about it, is that, you know, if you give humans the opportunity to get into a reflective state, they will have new ideas, And he said, you know, we're not in the business of selling outdoor media. We're in the business of helping people discover new ideas. And I thought, and that's why people, the people who do work for his company love it because it has a very different feeling, a very different philosophy than your typical go out there and sell, go out there and convince people. And, and, and there is something really fascinating and like the, the Daryl Davis, the guy who went to the KKK is a great example of this. It's like when you really sit and listen to humans, and this is what's fascinating about seeing that beyond the intensity and the solidity of our separate realities, everyone has the capacity to drop out of the, I know, and it's my way, and I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. Like we all have that part of our brain, but then we also have the capacity to step back from our assumptions about life in the world and get reflective. But I know I'm much more reflective if you are listening to me, right. if you're curious, if you're asking me, just like Daryl Davis is curious about the KKK and lo and behold, they've become friends. Right. There's something, it sounds surprising, but it's also predictable. Like, of course, of course we're like that. Of course, when someone sits with me and says, well, Tell me how you see the world and why do you think that? And that that it puts people in a different orientation. You're not coming at me saying, well, I'm your husband and I know better and I think you should X, Y, Z. Can I give, give some examples? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, but I, 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 I seem a little too excited about your example. Well, because I think it, it explains. No, I'm it just expl- The personal does explain the global. So Yeah, yeah, go for it. For example, like, you know, in, in a couple, you have, of course, have different things where you you just have different realities. So so my reality, for example, could be to um, go get something in a cupboard and then forget to close the cupboard door, for example. All the time. Or uh, if I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm busy, I'm like, I'm uh, listening to something or I'm in work mode. I'll even do stupid stuff like... 
I'll I'll get something in the fridge, make some food, and I'll put it back in the freezer. Or I'll get something out of the freezer and I'll put it in the cupboard. And like it totally a result of being uh like busy minded, like having other stuff on my mind. So I don't even realize that I will I will grab some frozen blueberries, make the blueberry smoothie, and then I'll put it in the fridge rather than the in the freezer. So in my world, I'm like, I'm used to like not that not being a big deal. I'm like, oh, I noticed in the, why did I put it in the fridge? So I just put it back in the freezer. So because it's not a big deal, I don't feel like I need to change it. I don't feel like I want to do anything about it. I don't, I, I just don't care that I do that. Whereas Mara, who also want cold uh, blueberries, frozen, frozen, frozen uh, bl- blueberries or, or wants to find the, um, cinnamon, the cinnamon in the spice cupboard, in the spice cupboard instead of the freezer, for right. example. In the freezer, for example, <laughs> uh, will then go like, where is it? And then she'll have a moment and she'll just, maybe she'll have a moment where she sees all the things like, oh my God, the cinnamon, the blue, but just, this is just too much. And then there are moments where uh, she meets me and it's like, She's maybe in the in a bad mood, or I'm in a bad mood. Mood, we're both in a bad mood. So she'll say, "Can't you just put the blah 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 over there?" And I'll go, "Blah blah 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 blah." That's how it sounds. The, the words doesn't matter. We'll be like, "Blah blah blah," and I'm like, "Blah blah blah." Whereas there are other days she'll go, "Blah blah 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 blah," and I'll go, "Blah blah 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 blah." And what we're saying is, uh, we're connecting in a way. So she'll go like, she'll think, what? And she'll really try to figure out how, how is ADA's reality? What makes him be able to do this, do these things? And it's so outside of her reality. So she'll really have to dig deep. Like, how is a person not able to just put the cinnamon in the, that cupboard? And when she does that, uh, she starts to understand and she meets me with a completely different feeling in a way. And when I meet her that, like, not only sometimes she doesn't even have to say anything, like, I'll go there myself, or she says it, and I'm like, oh, I know, I'm sorry. And then I try to be better. And and I'm not perfect, but I try to be better. So every time she opens that door, I always walk in. I always walk in. And every time she kind of, like, close it, I'm like, I can't walk in there because there's no opening. You know, you got to give me an opening here. Go ahead. Or do you want to do you want to do a? Oh, I was just gonna say I think universally, if I look at all the different examples, and that's one of as you can imagine, many we have as a married couple is it goes fine when neither of us assumes the tone or the position of being better than the other. Right. You know, I think yes. I always piss you off when I bring it up in a way that you is, feel like you're better than me. As yeah. Adik refers to it as the you're a useless piece of shit tone. <laughs> 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 because it's true that in a certain mood, I see that behavior and I literally think I'm better than him and he him doing this annoying. And yet I know on the flip side, there's things that I do that annoy him that he sees as, oh, I wish she did it my way, my way is better. And I have things where I see what he does and I think my way is better. But the second that one of us assumes the my reality is superior to yours tone, that's where 
we just get in an argument, we hurt each other's feelings, and no progress is made. Right. You don't change, I don't change, we just stay stuck about it. Right. And yet, when we can kind of check ourselves and check that feeling and realize, at the end of the day, you do whatever you do, I do whatever I do, but there is no better person in this relationship. There is no writer way of doing things. We're just two humans with different thinking and therefore different behaviors and therefore different versions of reality. And we can live very peacefully within the fact of that. Right. If we don't take it personally and don't get righteous. And, and I we think, would want to meet each other like in that space. Like I want to understand her world and I want to try to be better to to help her. And the same she wants to do that with the things that I find annoying. She's like mm-hmm. she wants to understand why I think that she wants to even meet me and she wants to try to make change. And those two things is like, that is a, a couple example. But if you look at beyond the relationship, mm-hmm. that's what we're doing in the, in the businesses and our families and an organization is that we, we don't stop to listen and try to understand and then try to meet them. Right. And, and if someone has a different idea, we, we, we take we the superior thing. Yeah. And you could even you could do it in business, and yeah, you can even sure. do it with what we're doing now. Like you know, oh, people who don't understand their mind, they're blah 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 blah. And there's this superiority about it. Like it's all bullshit. Anyone who does that has like done the thing they're trying to not to do. It's <laughs> it's it's all the same. We're all trying to do our best. We're all you know in a way full of shit, and we all are trying to do our best. And if we try to meet and have a certain sense of like understanding that we're all doing it, then we can really make a change and like we can stay together, live together and figure out solutions with very different realities. That's the, That's key. the thing. We're not trying to change people. We're just like, you can keep it. You can keep the uniqueness, be you, this country over here. You don't have to be the same country as us, be you, but keep it. But with those two realities, we can meet and then we'll start to listen and we'll start to meet on the stuff that we don't agree. And we can start trading. We can start being with each other. It's just, it all changes from that very simple relationship metaphor to a global metaphor. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say one more thing and then I wanted to see, because I see we have a few more questions that have come in. But again, the idea is that the, The new thoughts for action will come from that starting point. So, again, you can see how if you're in that openness, that willingness to see the the made-upness of your own version of reality, then it's very easy to approach a marriage, a business conflict, an organizational systemic, like on any scale that that openness is the foundation, that curiosity, that willingness to go into a reflective state to see that it's just what's been put into place so far. It's just my thinking to date or his thinking to date or the collective thing. Like starting from there, then one of two things will happen is either you'll have new ideas like Greta Thunberg from Sweden did, and then therefore she took action that led to something different, really different. Or like Daryl Davis did, you'll be able to to sit with a group of people and listen from a reflective state where they begin to come up with new solutions and answers. And I think that's what's so cool is it's realizing this willingness to step back out of the solidity of what we think has already been created, to go to nothing, to reflect and be willing to come up with something new. It helps us have innovative ideas. It helps 
other people. And that's where solutions come from on any level. So the action comes from there. And then action can look like infinite different things. So we're not saying uh, there's not stuff to be done. Of course, right. there's stuff to be done. Right. But where that stuff comes from starts with this this piece that we're talking about with the mind. Right. We got okay. What do we got? We got some here? comments and then a question. So the comment from Amy is like, which I totally agree with that because there can be a thought belief that spirituality does not encompass political social activism. This for me was a kind of sleep. Not that everyone needs the political. Yeah, I, I would agree that even if you, cool. if you just take it outside of the political, I do think that the idea that being spiritual means not engaging with the world truly is mm-hmm. a, a choice. It's not more real than trying, <laughs> trying to engage with the world. I don't think there's a right or wrong, but definitely you can play a part in doing things. And that's not less... <laughs> less spiritual than trying to do something in my my opinion. Right. And seeing that even that is just stuff that we make up. I is know. it more spiritual to go meditate in a cave or is it less spiritual right. or is political? Like and who seeing knows? This, the, 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 the belief, yeah. The arbitrary made upness of how we define those things and then how that makes us participate or not. Right. We got a good question here from uh, from from Lick. Our, okay. Our boy Lick. Um I hear you about ending separation and stopping the fight. What would you suggest if a person or a community is suffering from some condition, not necessarily fighting, like drugs or poverty? Mm, that's, that's a great a, question. And actually, great. we got asked the poverty question on the last one, I think, and didn't get around to it. Well, oh, do you want to go? I was just going to say, I have my, what's occurring to me, but you probably have something else to start yeah, I'll start very general because I don't. I think that any problem, whether it be poverty or drugs, we it's the same process of listening and trying to figure out. Like, there's there's two levels of listening. One is like listening to truly understand. Like, what is that about? What is the the drug drugs about what is the poverty about not in a almost like not in a physical way but like where where does it come from how is it created how what's going on there why are we why are we doing drugs why is there poverty and like you really have to dig like like ponder those things and figure it out and like try to listen beyond your ideas about what you were educated in or what the the complex rules that people say oh it's because of this and you, you there's all these things that lead for that or it's because of these people like beyond all that like how is it created how how are those things created like you gotta look for that for yourself and when you look there you'll start to see links you'll start to see like the links between why that is happening and how that came about, how it was created, not on a physical level, but from a mind level, from a thought level. It had to be produced and was created for some something that was happening. So that's that's the kind of the one part of listening that it's a curiosity, is there endless? There's almost like no no one answer. It's just like an endless opening of your mind, endless listening, like for the rest of your life you don't know what this is about figure it out you'll start to learn and figure out what that's that's about and you'll have genius solutions of how to 
for what you'll see, you know? People who who do that and keep opening their minds will, will really see some amazing stuff and will really uh, come up with solutions that we haven't seen before because literally we haven't seen them before because we've been too busy looking at what we've already seen. So that's the one thing. The other thing is that the solution to what you're observing is within the world's capacity or the people you're looking at's capacity to change. So if there's one person with a drug problem, a drug problem, we got to understand that the way out of there, the way to change with that curiosity I was talking about is within them. Like it's not you, you're not changing the drug problem. It's within it's within something bigger than you, first of all. And second of all, it's within it's 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 supposed to come out through them so that they change whatever they're struggling with. So it's a person with a drug problem. You're not there to help them with that. You're there to listen, to understand, and help whatever needs to come out come out of them. So they figure out what they need to figure out in that. And and that's how I feel about poverty too, that it isn't on your shoulders. It's you're on your shoulders to listen and do what makes sense. Try a lot of stuff. Try saying stuff. Try try doing stuff, engaging with 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 life, and then seeing that it has to come out of the world. It has to come come out of nature. It has to come out of the people so that they change themselves. Because if not, it'll be your idea of change mm. rather than how change really happens. Because what you think is supposed to happen is usually not the right thing because one person doesn't have all the answers. So that's that's what has led us to uh, to go in anywhere. Like that's why we love this. We can go into any organization, any uh, community, and if we listen and we go on this endless journey of trying to understand what's going on in the community, and we understand that what needs to happen in the community, the community knows. So when they start feeling better, when they start um, finding something within them, when they start uh, challenging their own thinking, not we're challenging their thinking, they start to challenge whatever they believe in, whatever doesn't make sense to them, then they change the community. And that's the same with with, with the drugs, with the poverty, is that it, it happens in a very organic way that on a grassroots level, that's how it happens. And on a systemic level, you know, you can say that, oh, but poverty and drugs, it's like it's a systems thing that has been put on people. Well, that might be true, but it still has to happen by those systems reinventing, figuring out something new from within. It still has to go through humans, still has to go through the minds of people so that they figure out a new way to uh, solve it. So it's like, it's a question that's beyond a person, but it has to do a lot with listening, a lot with trying to understand, a lot with seeing that what we're looking for is inside. It's not, it doesn't, the answer isn't outside. And that, that you can connect with anyone if you know that. And you can, you can, you can facilitate or help or create space for whatever words you want to use, change to happen to anyone because it's just how, how it occurs. And I would say, I mean, 
I don't disagree with anything he just said. I would just kind of come at it from a different angle. Um, and again, all this stuff is, and I, hopefully this goes without saying, is the disclaimer is that w- this is just a discussion. This is what we see about it. So it's not it's, that. It's a, it's a pointer. Don't trust what we're saying. Yeah, it's not like uh, we're stating this is the be all end all to that question. Right. But this is just that was Adig's version of what he sees about your question. And then. For me, I think I think when I go more to the specific examples of when I have worked with people with addictions or worked with people who are living in poverty, there's two things that occurred to me when I saw your question. One is I have to realize I'm always putting my glasses, my version of reality's perception on what I think that person needs. And, and poverty is a really good one, I think, because... I've traveled the world and I've seen people and I've worked in different capacities with people from very different parts of the world. And the definition of poverty changes wildly based on the country you're in. So poverty in Finland or Norway looks very different than poverty in Brazil or South Africa. And I also saw that what people are comfortable with, what people define as enough is very different culturally. So The example I think of is like when I was doing volunteer work in Brazil, I had a certain amount of pity and um, shock around what looked like extreme poverty to me in the communities I was working with. And yet the more I spent time with them, I realized that they were not feeling sorry for themselves. They did not. And this could have just been not suggesting this is all of Brazil, just the the group of people I was working with. They kind of thought I was crazy that they had really nice lives right? because they had a very, very different definition of what you needed in life than I had growing up in the States, for example. And so I'm, I'm always sort of curious when I'm asking those questions to ask myself, how much of this is something that the person or the group of people are actually struggling with and want to change and how much is just my own perception that it should change? That's a great point. Based on what I was raised with. So I've I've always fascinated by that. But the flip side is I know I have worked with people who are are poor and unhappy about it and do want to change, for example. And then I've worked with people who are drug addicted and do want to change. I also know people like there's someone in my life currently that I think is drug addicted and doesn't want to change yet. And that's his prerogative. You know, I can't decide that he needs to change and that's suddenly going to change him, you know, so. So whenever you're asking that question, you have to realize you're seeing the world through the lens of your own biases, your own assumptions about the world and what people need and don't need. But when I have been with people that, for example, do want to get better from drug addiction or do want to pull themselves out of what they feel is true poverty that's um, making them suffer in life, is to me, it looks like a symptom of what we've been talking about that People are suffering, and when they suffer, they don't see a way out. And so they feel trapped, whether that's trapped, addicted to a chemical substance, or trapped um, without opportunity or potential mobility or, you know, the option to change their situation. In both of those cases, you can see if the person feels trapped, they think it's something totally outside of them that has control over them, that they're forced to live under, 
in a way. I'm living under the power of this drug, or I'm living under the oppression of poverty. Mm. And what I've observed in the last 14 years of working with human beings is that all humans, when they feel better, they begin to solve their own problems. And it's often shocking to them even that in a, in a rise in well-being, with that rise in well-being, they start to see new options. It's almost like the, the ice of their mind breaks up and water starts to flow and they start to see potential to make change in their life. It's not that you told them how to change. It's that when they felt better, they could change. And so that's what I found so inspiring about the work we do and teaching people about the mind and the inner source of well-being, that it is not whatever happened to you. You know, I've worked with people that grew up with horrible, horrible childhoods, and you completely understand why they got addicted to meth or heroin or opioids. Like, you could completely see why they got to where they got to, but it would be tragic if there was nothing we could do for those people. If it was just like, well, given all the stuff that happened to you, given what, you know, deck of cards you were dealt, you're stuck. You know, that right. that's not true. And I've seen, and I think it's so helpful and powerful for people to see that anyone can discover their own peace of mind from within. And that comes from learning about the mind. I've seen it consistently that as people learn about their mind and that their mind isn't actually being controlled by outside circumstances or past experiences, that their mind is their moment-to-moment relationship to the thinking going on in their head. And that when they develop a healthier relationship to the thinking going on in their own mind, they start to feel better. And that feeling better from within is what increases people's well-being. And when people's well-being increases, they begin to solve their own problems. I mean, all kinds of problems. It's moved me to tears. It's shocked me. But I have seen that when people feel better, they see solutions to anything going on in their life. And that can help pull people out of poverty. It can help heal people from drug addiction. It can help businesses see how to, you know, settle a debt and innovate a new product and move forward. Like I've seen all of the above happen in people when they have a jump in well-being. So to me, the answer to your question lies in how do you help people have more well-being? Because when they have more well-being, they solve their own problems. I think that's spot on. All right, I think we um I think we're I think we're there. Thank you so much guys. Oh, we got one more question. Oh, we have a lot of more questions. Yeah, I always stress always. Me out. All right. Well, I know, I know I know I know James um asked uh questions last time too and we didn't get to him, so maybe we'll do that as the last one. Okay, we'll do this last one, and then we'll, uh, like we said, the next webinar will be a Q and A focus. It's going to be purely Q and A, and it's not happening next week because this guy is going to Norway for his birthday, it's April second. It'll be the following week, April second, yeah, two weeks yeah. from now. So we'll send out info about it, but that one will will leave space for it to be primarily questions driven. All right, and Sut, I'm sorry if I'm not Sut. Joel, Joel. Joel, okay, Joel. Says, I love what you are seeing. That's how real change occurs. Nice. Lick says, thanks. I'll be in touch. See you in the membership, Lick. Um, all right. The question is, let's put it on here. How much do you think people not owning change is down to apathy and people not being used to going within for solution, but expecting someone else to sort of issue, e.g. something should be done? Well, James, that is precisely why we wanted to create 
an online course that anyone could participate in is because I think that innocently, and I think it's innocent, nobody wakes up and says, well, I want to feel checked out or I want to be apathetic. It's more that over time, if people don't see the role of individuals and individual thought in the process of change on any scale, then I'd be apathetic too. And actually, I've realized, particularly in the last few years, since we decided to launch One Solution, that I was resigned to a lot of things. And I'm sure I still am, frankly, to a whole bunch of things I probably don't see because, you know, we don't see what we don't see. But I think I was resigned to, well, there's just certain stuff in the world that looks too big or too complicated. And so I didn't see a way to participate in it. So I can confess to my own apathy and resignation and helplessness about all sorts of issues. But, you know, uh, for those of you who haven't heard this story already, I've talked about it at a couple conferences and in my book, but there was kind of an aha moment when I was talking about the Syrian refugee crisis where I realized I was talking about it as if it was something that was horrible and complicated and there was nothing that I could do anything about. And I kind of realized in that moment, oh, this is how this is how people This is how nothing happens. This is how nothing happens. This is how people become a- apathetic and don't even realize it is they just go, well, too big for me. I can't be a part of it. And in that moment for me it was the realization of like, oh my god, there's so many world problems that I think about and talk about in that way and it's not true. You know, if I see something and I want to be a participant in helping, then who's going to do that but me? Who's like and I don't know, it kind of all just blew up in my face how solid and real that had looked for so long when I would watch the news or read the newspaper or hear about issues in the world. There was a separateness between me and those issues, and I believed that separateness to be true, but I kind of had an aha moment where I realized, oh my God, that's made up. If you want to be a participant, go be a participant. It's you as much as it's anyone else. And that was really the beginning stages of us deciding to launch this nonprofit. Now, clearly... Aymara haven't gone and single-handedly dealt with the Syrian refugee crisis, but we have decided to launch a nonprofit doing the projects that we're doing in Chicago, in the Middle East, soon to be the Congo this summer. Like we're doing different things in different parts of the world that were inspired by a shift in that thinking of going from being a distant, apathetic non-participant to suddenly seeing, oh, hey, wait, we could participate. And we've taken steps and we're trying our best and and I think it's so natural and normal for people to to fall into that without realizing it. And that's exactly why we want to do this as one of the things we offer at One Solution is an online course that helps people see more easily that they can be a part of the change they want to see in the world. And, you know, I can honestly say that for me personally, if you just look at myself, like sometimes you look at yourself and you're like, you became apathetic about trying to do anything with yourself too. Right. And on the flip side, you can become hyper uh, conscious of what you think is wrong with you and that what you need to fix about yourself. So to me, there's a, like a an unspoken yin and yang in a way that I think that people often go in two camps. One is like either oh, there's, there's no point or like, 
everything is as it should be and you know nature is bigger than this and we should just not be active and if we're active then it's because we're trying too hard and the other camp is like really trying too hard <laughs> you know like everything is wrong with the world and i gotta fix it and i've done that with myself i've, I've been on both ends of like totally ignoring stuff that was totally within my control of change in my own life. And I've been hyper aware and trying to change everything about myself. And there's a middle ground where you can be almost like okay with what what is, you can be okay with yourself, you can be okay or accept or, or have some sort of calm around the world and then still engage, do what you can, do what makes sense and try to move the needle in, in a way that makes sense of it to me. There's that 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 middle ground, the unspoken middle ground, that where the juice really is, and where you get that feeling of not needing to, but you 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 can, and you can actually create something amazing. Like you can change your you who you who you think you are can change, and and the world can change, and you can be a part of it. That to me is amazing. But if you don't want to, you don't have to. But if you're sitting there apathetic, then then I think that that is something that totally can be alleviated by by finding something within yourself and and doing what makes sense. So that's that question. Thank you. It was a good question. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Another awesome discussion, and we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks for Two the weeks last one. And we, I think we're launching the information about the online course on Thursday. We've already gotten emails. If you're still uh, interested, send us an email and we'll put you on the list and then we'll send out the information about it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.